Welcome to the Collections by Michelle Brown Show, a show about people living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality as they create change. This episode is brought to you in partnership with the Center for Peace Counseling and Holistic Healing Services. Welcome to Collections by Michelle Brown. I'm your host, Michelle Brown. Each week, we'll be talking with people living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality and creating change. Emmy Zanotti moved from Michigan's city on the bay, Bay City, to Southeast Michigan, stepping out and stepping up as a DE&I specialist, community advocate, and political activist. After reaching out to stand for trans as a resource and to connect with others in the transgender community, she went on to serve as a board treasurer for many years. She more recently became engaged in politics, where her efforts helped flip two key congressional seats in Michigan's 2018 elections. She currently serves as third vice chair of the Michigan Democratic Party's LGBTNA caucus, a big leap forward for transgender representation in the heart of progressive politics in Michigan. Emmy has been recognized for her work by the city of Birmingham, Michigan's diversity honor roll and was honored by the Human Rights Campaign as the State of Michigan's sole awardee for political action. Emmy, welcome to Collections by Michelle Brown. Well, Emmy, I want to welcome you to the show. Um, How have you been? I have been good, all things considered. Um, Just coming off of a a bout with, with COVID, but I was lucky to have avoided it for two years, I know. Um, you know, mm-hmm. so many folks, so many folks in Michigan, around the country, and in our communities, haven't been as, as fortunate, and especially on the recovery end. But so, so all things considered, the last two years, I'm in, I'm in pretty good, pretty good shape, pretty good physical health, pretty good mental health, and just um, super happy to be uh, here with you today. Well, good. I'm glad to have you. Now I know you started life up in the Bay City area, and now you're down here. Do you ever miss Bay City? Do you get up there often? That's funny. So I do try to get back there a little bit, right? Uh, my family's still there in the area. Actually, none of my immediate family still lives in Bay City specifically, but they've moved into the Midland area, um, things mm-hmm. like that. So I do get back there from time to time because, uh, you know, with the last name like Zanotti, right, and being a part of a big Italian family, uh, you can <laughs> imagine there's a lot of uh, ongoings that happen um, up there in, in the 989, as we call it. So yeah, I do try to get back um, I think it's natural uh, to miss where you come from, right? Because it's such a part of your foundation and, and um, shapes so much of how you kind of see and interact with the world, right? And and so um, there's nothing quite like home, uh, you know, once you leave there. So, you know, I, I do love trying to get back every once in a while. I don't keep a super big profile when I'm home, you know, try to spend my time mm-hmm. with my family and, 
and catch up with, with some very close old acquaintances and things like that. But um, yeah, I think uh, every day I wake up, I, I miss the, the thread or the fabric of Bay City that kind of still lives in me, which I'm sure you know, um, you probably have a little bit of, you know, where you were born and raised in you every day that you kind of reflect on and think about, and, and it's no different for me. So um, certainly try to get back there and, and um, you know, miss my family like, like crazy living 100 miles away, but um, of course, we'll always have a, a huge chunk of, of Bay City in my heart. Well, you know, I always try to, especially when it's someone in Michigan, I'm talking to someone in Michigan, and they're from another part of Michigan, because often when you travel, people tend to think of Michigan as, well, they know the mitten, pole mitten thing, but then they think of, well, you've got to know about Detroit. They might know about the, the Upper Peninsula, but it's like the rest of it is like a vast wasteland. And part of what makes the Metro Detroit area strong are people from all over the state who, who end up here. Yeah, you know, it's sort of because there's something unique about this area where you have people who are very, we're not like New Yorkers or Chicagoans. You know, we have a little bit of Bay City, a little bit of Saginaw, a little bit of, you know, and all of these places and then come together here. You know, so this is your home, Southeast Michigan now. <laughs> uh, yes, both of yes. them two places by the water, how important is being able to visit, see the water to you? Oh, that's a great question. Um, yeah, so it's funny in Bay City, um, because it is the city on the bay, right? I think mm-hmm. we visited the bay as children, um, maybe less than two handfuls. Um, so I think I can count on maybe even one hand the number of times we put our feet in the water up there, right? We kind of lived in the inner city part of Bay City. Um, if we were going anywhere, it was across the street to play uh, sports or jump rope or something in, the, in like a funeral home parking lot or something. You know how kind mm-hmm. of city life is, right? But, you know, so we didn't spend a lot of time um, on the water uh, growing up. And, and certainly, though, as I've um, become an adult, I found certain activities and, and that part of Michigan's just nature and who Michigan is as a state um, to be really kind of gravitating and, and relaxing for me. So actually, when I was coming out as a transgender woman, and this was seven or eight years ago, I never thought I would lose track, but I'm starting to. Uh, but uh, I suppose that's a good thing, right? And um, so I had taken up as kind of a, a calming exercise, um, had bought a used stand-up paddleboard, which they've become very popular. You'll even see them on the Detroit River nowadays sometimes and around Belle Isle but they didn't used to be, and I would take that thing out after work uh, to some secluded lake in like Pinckney or something when I was living in Ann Arbor, and I would just sit on that board or stand on that board in the calmest water and watch deer drink and things like that, and it was just such a cool way to kind of just center myself and realize that, you know, while my issues are important, um, there was always a way to kind of step away from them for a little while and reset, and so, um, you know, it's really funny you ask that because, Uh, A lot of times when we talk about our coming out stories and our transition journeys and things like that, um, you would never think something like, how does your connection to water or the beach uh, play such a significant role in that? But I don't think I could have gotten through some of those early, formative, tough years of my transition and dealing with with family members and educating coworkers and 
losing friends, right, without that mm -hmm. access. So I can't imagine, in hindsight, having lived in a different place while I was going through that. I'm sure I may have found a different coping mechanism, but I'm sure happy with the one I found and, and still stick with the sport today. So really appreciate that question. You know, I think that's kind of, you know, with, you said like, it's like seven years. And now, you know, and I talk to and I know people who have trans youth. I, think I have a friend in, in Delaware, and her daughter Trinity told her like at, I think she, to, she told her at three, and at four, she was like, okay, this is real. How do we work with it? And she was telling me that, um, okay, this is a, I love this. This is a great story. So Deshaun Trinity came out. So then they went through all of this stuff for Trinity to be accepted, to live her life, you know, fully. And it, it, it isn't a big thing. So years later, I think she, uh, Deshaun has like four kids. One of her younger kids said, Mom, <laughs> I think I'm, I am a girl, you know. And they started going through all of this, and she's like, Mom, I wish I knew other kids who were trans. And it hit her that it had become so a part of who they were, a part of their family, a part of their community, that her younger child didn't realize that her older child had been a trans youth and that there were things that, that they could go through that she could help her. And she says about her older child that Trinity couldn't have grown into the woman that she is if she didn't have her trans aunties because she said no matter how supportive and everything it is, there are certain things about the experience that her trans aunties helped her with. And I'm thinking about you. And as you talked about your coping, you know, how water helped you cope. I mean, and there are things that you need to do that only someone does it. Do you ever, when you're talking with trans youth or if you should encounter someone who's having it, share something as personal as that, like, you know, hey, try this. It doesn't have to be a huge thing. It's, there's a way you can center yourself and to to do that, is that an important message that you've shared or you feel needs to be shared? Uh, yeah, absolutely, right? Um, and it's so mm -hmm. hard when you're talking about youth, right? Because um, I know uh, I tried um, coming out way back when, when I was seven or eight years old, and A, I didn't have the language to come out, right? Mm -hmm. B, my family didn't have the language, right? So the world has changed so much. Uh, that was probably the late 90s. I We were a... Uh, um, a lower middle class household, I think, right? My dad was a foundry worker at a factory in Saginaw, right, at General Motors. Um, mm -hmm. With so many folks on the I-75 corridor, um, you know, in the last, you know, 50, 70 years in our, in our state, right? Um, and I think uh, they also didn't have the language because we didn't have computers, we didn't have Google, we didn't have internet, right? All that stuff exists nowadays, and I think that's a great resource for kids, but the internet is a weird place to try to escape, right? A weird place to try to ground yourself really? because it's mm -hmm. where all the noise is too, right? So you might have a couple accounts on Instagram that center you, but in between them are the political noise and the other things like that, right? And so I think it's really important, uh, not just for trans youth, but probably youth kind of universally at this stage uh, in the you know technology era we're in, 
to find some sort of release or escape and not escape in a run from your problems way, but escape in a resetting yourself kind of way that's far away from the, the phone and the technology and the computers and the iPads and all the other tablets, right? Um, just to get mm -hmm. away from that and, and, you know, really listen to what, you know, your brain's telling you, your body tells you what you need. It's something we don't really teach in our country, I feel like. Um, it's kind of being in tune with, with what your body's saying, right? We're always kind of go, go, go here. Um, but I really think uh, that is a, a great piece of advice I try to share um, with kids. And, and it's such a tough balance because you understand that if they were raised with video games being their escape, right, that's, that's their comfort zone. And sometimes mm -hmm. it feels weird um, to step out of your comfort zone. But, um, yeah, I would definitely encourage kind of more, uh, I guess, alternative away from the technology outlets to try to find that, that space to kind of ground yourself and center yourself. And not just for... Uh, not just not just for the kids too, but the parents, right? Um, we can, you oh, know, yeah. parents too. I find them go down that wormhole and start reading things on Reddit or Google, and and um, it heightens their anxiety, it heightens their fear, and we kind of forget what the what the whole thing's about. So, um, yeah, I would 100%, uh, you know, recommend that. I guess. What What about you though, Michelle? I mean, is there anything you've kind of done? Um, I, you know, assume, uh, you know, in your time, you found. Uh, probably different things that work for you to kind of calm yourself when, you know, the political culture is a little, you know, nuts or something's going on in the community, right? Um, you know, interested to hear kind of uh, the wisdom you would share on that front because I'm sure there's things I'm still trying to figure out and would love to learn something new. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, and it's funny because I think there was a time that if someone had 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 given me that, that title or said, oh, that, you know, I'd be someone's auntie, you know, like, when you're at one point, you think, oh, that's somebody like who's old and has sage wisdom. But, you know, if you live life, you have wisdom. And I often, like, when I talk to people, and particularly in our community, they say, oh, well, but it gets better. And sometimes you've got to tell, yeah, well, you know, it does get better. But sometimes it'll almost break you, you know. But they're about being resilient. And, you know, and sometimes you know, we all want to, to have our, our red F on our chest, but sometimes to sort of like talk about a time when maybe you were a little challenged, maybe you fell down, maybe you had to find a place. And for me, often my place has been in books, but also in, in community. You know, like I often like towards the later part of my of her life as an adult my mother and I had a really wonderful relationship and many people met me then because I was more out then and they said oh your mother was just so perfect and she did like oh girl you know what there was a time when she didn't really like me and, and I didn't really like her and, and to, to sort of share that that it's growing you know and and sometimes it's bad time and sometimes you know you got to have You'll go to your books. You'll go to your friends. You have a space that you go. One of my favorite places used to be pre-COVID was the DIA <laughs> to, to, to walk oh around gosh, quietly, yes. you know, and there's uh, certain places where you just sort of sit and look at something and, and think about the bigger things. But I often tell people, you know, on both sides to reach out. I mean, you know, don't be careful about who you reach out with. If you see someone who 
you kind of think is living what's close to your truth, to kind of reach out to them, you know, put a little feelers in the air, see how it is. And then on the other side, if you have that, if you have some experience, even if it's kind of hard, and you hear someone going through something, sometimes you have to say, you know, it will get better, but you know, you're going to get through this. You'll get through this to get better. And that's, and that's you know, that's what I find a lot of it doing. So being that auntie sometimes is not that bad. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, completely agree with that. And, and it's one of the things, um, you know, I think I've grown to really appreciate about being a, a trans woman and someone who, uh, you know, if I could do it all over again, of course, I think I would have transitioned earlier in life, but I think the grass is always greener on the other side, right? And, uh, you know, I think one of the things is when I look at, uh, you know, folks who are my age, so I'm 33, and um, I don't, I, I know that pains me to say, um, because I feel like I just graduated from high school yesterday, but, you know, at, at 33, I look at my friends and in some ways, they're further along in their lives in terms of they bought houses before me or have had children before me, settled down, um, found significant others before me. So some of those social benchmarks, I would say I'm on a, a little different uh, you know, time frame than, than some of my friends, especially the ones outside the LGBTQ plus community. But I will say you know, the one thing I feel like I've gotten from my transition is some wisdom and experience, and I know so many other trans folks and, and non-binary folks get this, that some of my friends and peer groups, you know, they might not get until, you know, they get to their 40s, 50s, sometimes even 60s, right? But, but having to go through that and the loss of relationships that's sometimes involved for, for certain, certain folks in the community with coming out and transitioning um, and navigating really tough conversations in, their, in your workplace and having to constantly educate people on things and set expectations and the pressure that comes with all of it, I really feel like it, it gave me, you know, a sense of, of empathy and insight into other people uh, that I'm not sure I would have had I not gone through that experience. So um, I love the way you kind of talked about, you know, loving being the, the auntie, right, and having that, uh -huh. you know, being that source of wisdom for someone. Uh, is really a privilege, right, and, and an honor. And so I think as I continue to get older, and I know I'm still a spring chicken compared to a lot of people, <laughs> at least that's what my mom would uh -huh. say, right, but, um, uh -huh. you know, really trying to learn how to, you know, embrace getting wiser, not older, right? Well, you know, and I think that the other thing, you know, because you, and, and I know what you mean, like sometimes, you know, when you're in the LGBTQ community, Okay, and some things like are are maybe on the back burner. And I would even say like if you if you're an activist and you and you put all that, it'll be on the back burner. Because I know I have times and I look at people and I go like, wow, you know, if I had stayed in the for profit world, you know, I'd have you know this and that. But being around community and and seeing some of these the people and the things that they've gone to to and interacting with them sometimes also helps you reset what what the values, you know what I mean? Okay, well, hey, you know, you have transportation to get you back and forth. Do you need, you know, this where you can, you've been able to accomplish this and 
and building something that's going to last longer than saying, you know, I had a house, three-car garage, and this and that and the other, you've built something bigger. And so it helps you, like, sort of reset that. And I think that that's the other thing that I often tell people. I said, well, it made me think about what is wealth and what it is. There are people who I know who have shared things with me, who I can talk to, who I can call upon and who are there for me, and that's worth, you know, more than the best credit rating because, you know, credit rating can go up and go down. But some of this is real, you know. It sort of like helps you recognize what is real. Yes. No, I think that's probably accurate, right? Like I'm, I'm fortunate to have not been uh, in, you know, a situation where I was in, say, like those feigning moments of your life, and I don't know what happens when you're there, right? Do you kind mm-hmm. of reflect back on everything and every decision you ever made? Or, you know, I don't know what that, that, that transition for people looks like and that process, but, you know, we'll all learn someday, right? But I think, you know, when, when I think about that, I, I just try to tell people, I don't think you're going to regret that day you took off of work to go be with your family or the, mm-hmm. you know, week you took off and you had to catch up on something because, you know, you wanted to really recenter yourself or engage with your community, right? Um, so I think I, I just have a hard time believing it's, you know, the things we spend most of our days stressing about are probably not the things that will matter to us uh, when we kind of mm-hmm. look back on it all. And so I try to keep that in perspective. And, and as someone who still does work, uh, you know, my day job anyways, right? I say I kind of have a 5 to 9, which is the 5 <laughs> to 9 a.m. thing. And then I have mm-hmm. a 9 to 5, which is the job that pays me money, which is an in-for-profit work, right? And then I also have kind of the, the 5 to 9 again on the back end of the day, right? And so mm-hmm. that first 5 to 9 is kind of the Emmy time, right, where I kind of find my balance and try to work out and eat a healthy breakfast and try to limit myself to one cup of coffee, right? But then, you know, 9 to 5 is, is someone else's time. And um, that helps me pay the bills. And then five to nine is is what I try to call community time, right? And that's, you know, been tough. I'm sure it's been tough for you. I know you love the community and you love traveling. And the last two years probably made both of those things tough, right? I know they did for me. Oh, yeah. And so um, I've gone through, you know, kind of lulls the last couple of years, depressive episodes, things like that. And that's what I'm really looking forward to about, you know, getting through the other side of this thing is being able to, to, to be back with the community and, and not just the celebrations, but, you know, um, not just celebrating the wins together, but mourning the losses together, right? Healing together, mm-hmm. things like that. Um, such an important part of, of um, all communities, but, you know, I think we both know this, such a vital part of the LGBTQ community and what makes our family, our chosen family, right, so valuable. Um, so I just, I'm just itching to get, get back to the in-person stuff here pretty soon. Well, you know, um, in, this, in October, they had the first Macomb County Pride. And there was, you know, you miss it. You miss it because there was something about it, even though after a while it got cold. But here were the things that you recall seeing the Pride, people who are regular Pride people. But because it was the first, you had people who it was like their first time out. And seeing that, like, hey, like, I found my tribe. I'm here with my peeps. And to, and to see that you do, you know, you want to get to that other side so that we can have those times when we can come together, you know, 
even if it's it's not at pride, it's at something where you can just sort of go and, and be amongst your community, you know, where you can just be you. So I know what you mean. It has been a long, a long couple of years, I'll tell you. Yeah, I did. I did really love that thing you said, though, really quick um, about pride. So uh, I'm sure there's a number of folks um, inside and, and outside of the LGBTQ community who have not had a chance to um, engage in kind of a collective experience like that. But isn't it so obvious or you feel like it's so obvious by the looks on people's faces to tell who in our community is attending their first pride festival? Mm-hmm. Uh, I, mm-hmm. I feel like you can see the like the smile, the the light shining in their eyes, things like that. I I just think that's one of the neatest experiences. And and I'll tell you what else is uh, more and more youth at Pride Festivals than I used to Mm -hmm. remember, right? Um, And seeing their eyes open to a world where they see themselves represented in adults who are, you know, enjoying life, having fun. Um, It's just just a really neat opportunity. And I'm, I'm glad that's a tradition that has, like, you know, lived on in our community. I mean, and it is, I'd always like when you, when I had that moment, even when we had, you know, be pre-COVID and I go like to Ferndale Pride or Motor City Pride and you could always see the new ones, you know, and it just always makes you, you know, it just, you have that moment and you feel so good. You know, you, you really feel good. The other thing that I thought was really, I mean, we were seeing it before, but having to see this first Pride was to see young people and they were bringing their family. And maybe it was mom, maybe it was dad. You know, we often have people who are there to give hugs and whatever, but these were like biological families, and you could see where it was sort of like, see mom, see dad, you know. I'm not, I'm not going to, uh, you know, go straight down to the hot place. Here's these wonderful people. And see them and watch the, the faces change on the parents when you see them and, and they become you know, it's like from going like, well, I'm just coming to support you to like, oh, wow, maybe they are having a good time, you know? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. A good time and a safe time and just, yeah, being around. Um, you know, they see, I think, uh, a side of our community um, that a lot of times people outside it don't get to see, right? And that's that mm-hmm. it is a family, right? And, and we, mm-hmm. um, you know, do come together for a lot of things. And, and that being the most visible one to a lot of people, but... I, I think you're right that that has had an increasing impact, um, not just on, on youth and the LGBTQ community, but helping them maintain those vital kind of, fam- you know, familial networks and things like that, too. Mm-hmm. Now, I will tell you, cause since, we're, since we're sharing, you know, since we're sharing, part of what helped my mother and I become closer was as she became involved in my world, Okay. And uh, the more out I became, the more, like, she became really supportive to where pretty soon, like, even if I wasn't there, if someone said something about someone gay, you know, she would set them straight because she knew the community. How has your coming out and being visible affected your family? Oh, that's such a good question. You know, I really feel like... um Coming out and transitioning for me now, uh, this was seven or eight years ago, which isn't Uh that long ago, but when you look at, from a representation standpoint anyways, not necessarily on the legislative side yet and some other issues, we're still having very prevalent issues, right, facing our community. Uh, 
I think from a representation standpoint, it is such a different world than it was seven or eight years ago, right? Um, and I know she's a, a, a hotly debated topic uh, inside and outside of our community, but I, I consider her one of the first really visible people that I remember, um, and I'm not particularly a fan of hers, but you know, I feel like the tabloids and the newspapers went nuts when Caitlyn Jenner came out and transitioned, mm -hmm. right? Um, mm -hmm. And at the same time, Laverne Cox was starring on Orange is the New Black on Netflix, which wasn't even that dominant of a streaming service as it is today, right? So that kind mm -hmm. of contextualizes how different the world is today than it was even, um, you know, seven or eight years ago. But the representation wasn't there, right? And so, you know, we see that more today. That new documentary on Netflix called Disclosure, which talks about the ways in which media advance but also hurt LGBTQ rights and causes, right? And, and the, especially the trans community and um, black trans women and trans people of color and, and how, you know, they're at the intersection sometimes of that really negative uh, media portrayal or lack of media portrayal, right? And so uh, the world has changed a lot. And I don't know what it looks like 100% for someone who comes out today or what it would look like if I was coming out today versus eight years ago when I did. But I will tell you when I came out, it was like taking all the relationships I had and all the maybe stereotypes or biases I had about how I thought people would respond versus how some people wouldn't respond. And it was like throwing all those relationships up in the air and just seeing where the cards fell, right? Uh -huh, um, uh -huh. And there were people who I thought were progressive and liberal and who would have my back. And we haven't talked since the day I told them, <laughs> right? And Yeah, you know, it's like, Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and mm -hmm. you know, the flip side, I have a friend who grew up on a farm that I went to college with, right, or a farm town, I should say, wears uh, overalls and things like that, long beard, right, um, loves like bailing hay and things like that, and he was one of my most supportive allies at the beginning, right? And so I had all these kind of preconceptions about who would be there and who wouldn't, and I think I got more of them wrong than right. So my own coming out was a, a test for me in terms of the way I perceive the world and, and draw conclusions about people that I see um, or know and how they'll respond and react to certain things, right? So um, mm -hmm. coming out and transitioning is, is an opportunity for transition and growth. We talk about it so much through the lens of trans people like me, um, but what an opportunity for the people around us to grow and learn and build new allies for the world and the community. And so on that front, I think my family, I've seen them become... Um, you know, a lot more progressive on a lot of fronts, right? Mm -hmm. Especially as it relates to gender equality and LGBTQ plus equality. And it's kind of served as a gateway to a number of other things, right? In terms of um, reproductive justice and rights and, and you know, how do we dismantle, uh, you know, the, the, the pillars of systemic racism in our society and to see them starting to kind of embrace these ideas that would have been really taboo topics at the dinner table when I was, mm -hmm. uh, you know, 16 years old, I think is a testament to kind of the ripple effect that coming out has and, and, and immersing people outside their comfort zone in a new experience, right? And, and it, so uh, I really would like to see us as a society stop pushing back so hard against, mm -hmm. you know, these youth challenging our gender norms and our sexuality norms because I think if we do it will really be a gateway for growth for all of us. And so my family grew a ton. I grew a ton. 
Uh, and I don't know if I can imagine a scenario where, you know, any other sort of life-changing event happening besides my transition that, that would have induced that sort of thing. So just another reason I'm, I'm beyond grateful for as many of the challenges I feel like I've, I've come up against in terms of uh, trying to get, you know, my health insurance figured out and getting non-discrimination policies put in, you know, human resources policies at the companies I work for and all these things that you worry about, uh, you know, there's a lot of blessings too, and, and that's certainly one of them. Well, Amy, we're going to take our first break, and when we come back, we're going to continue this conversation. So we'll be right back. This episode of Collections by Michelle Brown is brought to you in partnership with the Center for Peace Counseling and Holistic Healing Services, bringing balance to your mind, body, and spirit. For more information or to schedule an appointment, visit the Center at www.thecenterforpeacellc.com. back here on Collections by Michelle Brown. You know, Emmy, I was listening to you talk, and I was thinking, too, in fact, I had talked a couple weeks ago with uh, another strong, amazing trans woman out of Atlanta and who had been in the media. I mean, before she moved to Atlanta, she had lived there. And we were talking about how now you are seeing images, and they aren't all, we sort of put it like, you know, at one point in time, if you wanted to see something about black family life, it was a comedy. And I can remember being, you know, younger and having someone and saying to someone, you know what, my family isn't that funny. We're not laughing, you know, all the times. We're not, we're not singing good times. You know, we're real people and we're doing it. And at one point in time, if you saw the depiction of of a trans person, often they would want to show them as being uh, fooling someone, you know, oh, so-and-so discovered that it was a man and, you know, or, or it was a butt of a joke or something. There were some shows that were respectful of it, but it was through a certain lens where now, I mean, Laverne Cox, I know that when she started, she did Orange is a New Black, but then she did this one program called Doubt where she was, an out trans woman, I think she had Angelica Ross one day and, and some other ones they were sitting there talking, but she worked for, I want to say, a law firm. Of course, it didn't last long. But on, um, what is it, Austin 9-11 or something like that, they have a trans man who plays a trans man, and, he, and he's a firefighter. So it's like you're seeing real lives because, you know, you don't transition and then go into Hollywood. You know, you're not Caitlin, you know, knock on wood, you know, but, you know, you, you go to job or work every day. You know, you go and you, you have same issues. And so they're starting to show more realistic things. And 
often as we talked about, and I am going back to like marriage equality and, and just overall LGBTQ rights, when it started to be that it was over-the-back-fence conversations, people like your family, like my mother, who got to know our community, and then they said to their friends, this is not right. You know, they got to know us as something other than a stereotype or a story. That's when you started to move hearts and minds. You know, you might not have changed all of them, but you moved enough to where you saw political change. Now, I watched you, and I remember when the LGBTQ and LI caucus, there was like a changing of the guard. And there were some people who had been there, and I knew them. I knew a lot of them, loved them, you know, but it had to change. It had to change to a new generation, a new group of people. And I think that from that, the direction it's taking, it's like that again, moving hearts and minds. What made you decide to, you know, people often go like, you're part of the the Democratic Party, you know, or you want to be political. What made you decide to be political and and explain to me what a third vice president is? Yeah, yeah, right. Uh, I'm still figuring it out, but the mm-hmm. good news is they include me on the meetings, so I think I'm in. I'm in the group. Um, yeah, no, I think. Oh, I don't even know. So uh, where do I start? Uh, one, uh, you know, always like to pay a little, uh, you know, homage to uh, those who kind of came before me. And so, mm-hmm. little known fact is my on my mother's side of the family. So my mother's last name is uh, Voisine, French for neighbor, right? And so uh, uh-huh. her, her father, uh, my grandfather, we called him Papa Bud. Uh, I never knew him. He passed away when I was two. Um, he was the first county executive of Bay County, Michigan, back in the, I think, I want to say the early 60s. Or, yeah, that would be about the right time frame, right? Uh-huh. Um, uh-huh. And my grandmother, uh, so they wrote an article, which at the time, I suppose was really flattering, but as we continue to advance gender norms in our society and challenge those, maybe not as much now, but, you know, they called her, a, you know, a real gal Friday in her obituary, right? And so she worked <laughs> for a number of Democratic congressmen, um, United mm-hmm. States congressmen, right? And so they were kind of the beloved uh, center of the Bay County Democratic Party. And so I always identified as a Democrat, uh, but I never really knew why growing up. So I would say in my household, we were um, apolitical, right? I am 99% sure my mom never voted for anyone but a Democrat, even if my dad, uh, when he was in the military, told her to vote for Reagan so he could get a raise or something like that, right? Um, mm-hmm. I think she probably she probably gave him the, gave him the slip, right? But um, <laughs> so... Now, my dad, on the other hand, um, is probably a, more of an independent um, in the sense that uh, his vote can be swayed from one side to the other, right? Um, do I understand 100% why and how that works for him? I don't. Do I agree with it? I, I don't, right? But the point being, and I think this is pretty typical in a lot of kind of uh, lower middle class or probably even kind of upper lower class um, or lower class white families, uh, in the Midwest and in, you know, the, the Rust Belt and um, across the Plain States and things like this, right, where 
this kind of apolitical identity, right? This indifference to what's happening in the politics is a desired and preferable way to be, right? And so while I always voted for Democrats and I always supported, you know, Barack Obama was kind of coming of age the first time I was able to vote, right? And the hope and change mm -hmm. he inspired, but I don't think I was really listening, right? I thought he sounded really good, right? I thought he was convincing and he inspired me and I wanted to be a part of electing the first black president of the United States of America, certainly. But I can't think of any specific policies or things I really cared about. Or, and, and the funny thing is I was still struggling with my gender identity, right? I knew I was trans from the time I was a, a kid and started to find the words or the depictions, right? But never connected my reality with the politics, right? And so mm. I know you and I kind of in exchanging notes beforehand, you know, you had mentioned something about what we kind of wanted to talk about today. And, you know, you mentioned the, the personal is political, right? And I absolutely love that phrase. And so I will say I know of that phrase kind of coming about in the 60s, 70s, feminism, sexual revolution era, but I would almost be willing to bet that it predates that, right? And so, um, you know, there's some interpretations, I think. I have a lot of friends, um, as one does when they join the repro justice and LGBTQ activist mm -hmm. community who studied gender studies in college and things like this, right? And they, they used to use this phrase all the time. And so I said, I, had, I have to Google it, right? And yeah, this interpretation that I kind of choose to adopt for what that means is that, you know, you kind of start with your, your really personal issues, right? And so mm -hmm. for me, that might have been uh, coming out at a company that at the time um, didn't have a health insurance policy that was inclusive of my gender identity. So it wasn't just transition-related health care. It was the first time I went to go get a cold medicine prescription and the first time I went to get an annual physical. And the doctor told me, you know, that insurance denied covering the, the medical charges and things like this, right? So it can mm -hmm. be something as... And not to say that that's minute or small, because I think we're probably both in agreement that healthcare is a human right um, anywhere, and, and especially mm -hmm. in a country, you know, with as much wealth and, and influence as the one we live in, right? And so mm -hmm. uh, it's taking back, you know, the littlest things like that and starting to, to I, I call it peeling back the onion, right? So you start to say, well, why don't I have insurance? Oh, because companies aren't prepared for people like me in the workforce or at worst blatantly discriminate against people that look like me or have my experience in the workforce, right? Okay, why mm -hmm. is that? Uh, because we have no legislation that protects transgender people in the workforce, right? And then, so you just kind of keep peeling that back and next thing you know, you've uncovered a big political hot potato and systemic issue in our society, right? And so it's really easy to kind of look at things through a personal lens and think, well, that's a bummer, but I'm not political, right? I was raised mm -hmm, to not be political. Mm -hmm. It's admirable to not cause a ruckus, right? It's admirable to not do uh, what the great John Lewis said, right? And like make good trouble, right? And so, um, you know, I just started kind of in pursuit of my own advocacy, right? Just trying to survive. I think I really started to um, become uh, what my parents would probably describe as like a political animal or a political monster, and that used to bother <laughs> me. Now I think it's a compliment. Is that bad, Michelle? I think it's a compliment. No. Um, mm -hmm. So 
and and it started off with a lot of the nonprofit community work that I got engaged in. Um, and I remember at the time sitting down when, um, and I think we'll probably talk a little bit about this, sitting down with, um, you know, Stand with Trans, which is an amazing nonprofit in the Metro Detroit area that serves trans youth and their mm -hmm. families, and helping them kind of lay their founding strategy in their in their formative years, right? And I think um, Donald Trump had just been elected, and some of the kids were really scared that we were talking to, and I had kind of taken. Um, that high road approach which said, you know, we'll have good politicians in your life and we'll have bad politicians in your life and there will be uh, policies that help us in your life and policies that hurt us in your life and we just need to focus on our thing and our issues and our own health, right? And in hindsight, I think there might have been some good messaging there, but I, I would have strongly objected to myself if I could go back and be uh, in the corner of that room today, right? And that is to say, mm -hmm. that stuff is all related to the politics, right? And, and the tough thing is, with disenfranchisement and things like this, so let's make it not about me for a second, right? Let's take it to the third person. Let's say you are someone who's working, uh, you know, between 40 and 50 hours a week, which if you're working more than 40 hours a week, there's a much higher likelihood you don't have a bachelor's degree, right? Let's mm -hmm. say you are making minimum wage, which for those who don't know, as of January 1st of this year in Michigan is now $9.87 an hour. If you multiply that right by that 40-ish mm -hmm. hour mark, you're talking about less than $24,000 a year, right? So now mm -hmm. let's say you have one kid, a second on the way, right? You're making less than $24,000 a year. You're working over 40 hours a week, not even enough to put food on the table, right? probably not enough to own a car or at least one that's reliable. Mm -hmm. So now you're mm -hmm. taking the bus. Now you're taking the bus to work, right? Which, Which is not reliable. Mm -hmm. Right, right. So if you're mm -hmm. outside of the seven major metro areas in the U.S., taking the bus to work means you're 44% likely, more likely than, you know, the rest of the, the workforce to be a, a low-income employee, right? And so, mm -hmm. you know, you start to piece all this together. You go to your job, you work 10 hours a day, you get one 15-minute break in the morning, one in the afternoon, and a 30-minute lunch, right? Uh, yeah. You get sick, you have no access to paid leave, you are pregnant, you might not even qualify for FMLA. I think like 40% mm -hmm. of Americans don't. So you might not get leave paid or unpaid. And if you do get paid, you're one of a lucky 23% of Americans who get that, right? And so... This is what it means when we say the personal is political. You mm -hmm. are exhausted just trying to live your life and make ends meet. And I understand and empathize with this idea that you might not want to engage with the politics. A, because it's exhausting and tiring just to live. B, because it's toxic. C, because the person that you trusted who said, vote for me and I'll change the world, let you down, right? And I mm -hmm. empathize with that. And I feel that in my core, in my gut, in my heart. But the tough thing is, is whether we decide to engage with it or not, whether we decide to be disenfranchised or not, you know, the real issue here is that the politics go on without us, right? So whether I go vote or not, whether I, you know, make good trouble in my community or not, there's people making bad trouble in Washington and Lansing, right? There's people making bad trouble mm -hmm. in boardrooms, right? And they're saying, they're deciding, you know, how far you have to walk to catch the bus. 
they're deciding things that will impact whether the bus shows up on time on an 11 degree day in Michigan. They're, you know, let's take it back to Rosa Parks. They're even deciding where, where the heck you get to sit on the bus, right? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. all these things are happening and the polls are deciding these things about our lives and their, their decisions they make happen to us, right? And so when I think the personal is political, those are kind of the examples I think of, right? Is, is um, everything that happens to you uh, from the taxes you pay, right, to the price you pay for gas, literally anything is political. So when I hear people say I don't get political, I, I just have to imagine they sit in a bubble and they don't read news and they just stare into the nothingness because anything besides that is political. Well, you know, and it, the part, how, especially when you see how they try to polarize groups, but really, I mean, I've gone to to like when they had the first women's march and afterwards I went to a couple of things afterwards. And, but if you take like something that you're talking about, that healthcare, but, and the same people who are in there, cause I know that some, I mean, and yeah, our good progressive sisters, <laughs> you know, who didn't want, who didn't feel that trans women should be at the table. Healthcare is healthcare. In this country, why doesn't everyone have healthcare? And when you say, okay, so your same company that is denying Emmy healthcare is making healthcare that you have to pay for, and you can't take off to go take and see about your children. You can't do that. And then you keep going, and you and like you said, you peel it back to where it's like somebody, you know, who's sitting at a table somewhere who really doesn't give a crap about anything but the bottom line, has said, we don't have to cover this person, that person, and the other one won't say anything, when really, you know, how would our community rise up if we said, in this country, health care is a human right, health care over dollars, health care over billions shooting a missile up to go so you can see the curvature of the earth. You know, this is a human right. How would would that do if we lifted up the whole community and you're able to when someone thinks like you are and you're able to peel it back and then to engage others people to where you know they don't have to understand what kind of health care you need because it's not really their business just like you don't have to understand what they need but you both have a right to be able to get health care to get a prescription if you needed it and when you, you find that, we can find a way to hold our, our politicians' feet to the fire, find people who get that message and elect them, put pressure on them, put pressure on the legislation. But right now, sometimes that just doesn't happen. You know, it just yeah. doesn't happen where people aren't, aren't prepared to do that. So like I said, I was watching I, I watched the changing of the guard because, and I, because I can recall like one time when they were trying to do it, and there were some young people, and it was like, there was someone like, well, you know, we could put them on an advisor committee. They don't have the experience to go in, to come in. So I watched even within that caucus, the changing, the opening of minds and thinking to where not only. Are they thinking about our community, but they're making sure that 
how it is for our community has a seat at all these other tables. Yeah, no, I, I, and the changing of the guard thing, Michelle, I probably don't have enough of appreciation for what things may have looked like before they look today, right? Um, but I do think I'm starting to gain a bigger appreciation of what things should look like tomorrow. And mm-hmm. I would say the guard has not fully changed. And that's not to say mm-hmm. that, you know, so right now on the caucus, we have, you know, Roland leading the caucus and, and Grace and mm-hmm. Jacob and myself, right? And we're all very passionate about change. But, you know, in a future state, you know, where are black trans women on that caucus, right? And so, mm-hmm. um, you know, would love to see the guard keep changing. Would love if in 10 years or five years, uh, you know, that's the case. I would love if I lost my reelection for vice chair to a, a, a black trans woman, right? Or something like that, right? Mm-hmm. Because that's, that's progress, right? And, and, and uh, you know, it's not a, this thing's not a zero sum game to give other people uh, a piece of the pie. And when I say give other people, I don't mean gift it to them. I mean give them what they've earned and deserve mm-hmm. as, as humans, right, and the labor they've put into the community. Uh, you know, and to take it back out of the LGBTQ community for the second, and I'm curious to know how you've been observing this, but we have uh, an opening coming up on the United States Supreme Court. And fingers crossed and knock on wood that we're able to not fumble this one, right, and I don't think we will, oh, and get someone appointed. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Joe Biden has been adamant about appointing a black woman to the United States Supreme Court, right? Mm-hmm. Talk about a changing of the guard. After the three justices that were appointed um, mm-hmm. that, you know, preceded her in joining the Supreme Court, uh, that, that's a changing of the guard. And do you hear the way people talk about that? Um, you know, this frustrates me so much to hear people say, well, we just want someone who's qualified. And I just sit back and I'm like, who's more qualified than a black woman to sit on the United States Supreme Court, right? I mean, black women built our country. The foundation of our country is is built Mm -hmm. on their work and their labor and their effort, right? Uh, Mm -hmm. Well, well, I guess, you know, people who kind of share my skin tone, I guess we're kind of sitting around smoking corn cob pipes or something like that, right? And so... (laughs) Um, the point being, who earned their seat on the Supreme Court and who didn't? Can we be clear about that, right? And so okay. that's where I well, say, you know, you know, I appreciate you saying that the guard is changing, but I, I just think there's that, that we still have so, so far to go. But I'm, I'm glad that I can kind of be uh, hopefully not the last one through the door, but the one that can help hold it open so, so more people can, oh, can I mean, sneak through. I think that that's part of And, you know, when I think about the Supreme Court and, they, and going through all of this, uh, you know, and if you go into LGBT history, LGBTQ history, because I think that if she was still alive, she would identify as uh, non-binary or queer. Polly Murray. And Polly Murray, I mean, both Thurgood Marshall and Ruth Bader Ginsburg said that a lot of what they accomplished was uh, based on the work of Pauli Murray. And Pauli Murray at one point wasn't allowed into a law school, I want to say, and I don't want to say which one of the Ivy League ones it wasn't. She wasn't able to do it because not only was she African American, but she was openly gay. Okay, so we've been there. We've been there doing the work. Okay, now, 
Yes, you want someone who's qualified. I certainly don't want Condoleezza Rice in there, you know. I mean, you know, hey, we have, there's also that balance that is supposed to be in that interpretation. So, you know, when I see that, when I read that, like, oh, it's just someone who's qualified. Well, you've got some people up there who the, what was this one, Amy, Conan, whatever. Um, <laughs> yeah. The people who, who, yeah, you know, the people who agreed with her. And and that guy, you know, who yeah, I mean, they just make my 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 brain burn. The people who put them in were not thinking about qualified. They were thinking about optics. They were thinking about a political decision. Okay, get a black woman in there. I mean, I mean, you know what would be awesome? A black trans woman. But you know, I mean, but someone because there's an aspect of life. And seeing what equality and inequality and injustice looks like and how it has been maintained through the laws and through a very narrow interpretation of a constitution that a person of color, and particularly a woman, will be able to bring that would, I think, would just take this country to a whole other level. I mean, I wanted to have some kids, too, okay? <laughs> I wanted to have yeah. some kids, too, you know, because there's something about that. I mean, that we often don't – how often do you meet a woman, like you said, who is making, what, minimum wage, figuring out how to feed kids, keep, you know, get from here to there to do all that when you talk about – but they can look and see what's fair and what's just – and how they try and do it, and that they are stepped on by some of these laws. I want someone who's going to bring a different perspective to to this, our perspective. I think that many black women who have reached that point and understand the law, understand equality and equal rights. You know, so the rest of them, all of that stuff, please, you know, please, you know, Keep it. Yeah. <laughs> well, Keep yeah, it, you know. Companies have been doing marketing this way for 120 years, right? Which mm-hmm. is like human-centered marketing, understanding human behaviors and obstacles people face, right? And creating products and marketing it in a way that makes them think or feel like, or maybe actually is, is overcoming those obstacles, right? Or helping them remove barriers, whether it's... Uh, you know, a new cleaning product to help us around the house get things done, you know, the RoboVac or something like that, right? Which those things are pretty creepy, mm-hmm. but um, especially the ones with voices. But I think, you know, uh, on that front, though, um, and with, uh, you know, the idea of appointing a black woman to the United States Supreme Court um, and the blowback we see from these sorts of things, um, you know, it just really makes me wonder... Uh, how far we really are in this conversation, right? And I think coming out of uh, George Floyd's murder a couple of years ago, um, that felt to me, um, un- you know, unfortunate, very unfortunate event. And, and it felt to me, though, and his only time will tell, that that is sort of a once or twice in a generation sort of shifting event for the way people start to digest the world. And especially, I think, um, um, you know, white folks in, in the U.S., right, I think really saw 
started to see things and maybe explore concepts and ideas about oppression and systemic racism that maybe, you know, we weren't exploring before, right? And now we need to figure out a way to keep the foot on the gas. And so one of the things we started mm-hmm. to talk a lot about is not diversity, not representation, not affirmative action, but equity, right? Um, the big E word, right? And, and what mm-hmm. that means. And, you know, I have spent a lot of time in conversations with friends and family members and, and folks who get kind of defensive over the equity term, right? And everyone says, you know, this concept that a rising tide lifts all boats is normally what we use to defend the assertion that equity is a zero-sum gain, right? And um, I think I'm going to stop using that. I actually put this on Twitter this morning. I think I'm just going to ask people who are afraid of equity from now on, uh, you know, why it is they think they stand so much to lose from equity and how acutely aware that must mean they are of how much they gained from the opposite, which is inequity, right? Mm-hmm, and, so, mm-hmm. and so I think we've given, um, through all this, I think there's been progress, but I'm starting to think we've given ourselves, you know, I think white people have given ourselves a little bit of a pass on the racial indifference front because clearly we knew all along how much we've gained from, from the way things were structured before. Um, and hopefully we can come to a reckoning sooner rather than later um, over this equity topic, right? And start to figure that out. Because I think until we do that, um, you know, there's no amount of representation or inclusivity practices that will help address uh, some of the problems we've created in, in the short, you know, couple hundred years that our country's been here. So uh, this is one small step on the representation front. And hopefully we can get a couple more small steps and get the snowball rolling here because we got a lot of work to do. Well, and I think that it is. I mean, often when you see people and, and they'll go like, oh, no, well, I'm not. But if you break it down to equity, and some people, this is often the ones who say, well, I'm not racist, you know, don't look at it. But they say, how have you benefited from that, you know, and they'll go like, oh, I didn't think about that. I didn't think about that. So, I mean, it's like, really, you know, let's have this conversation. In some ways, I mean, I think that when COVID first started and you saw who were your essential workers and uh, the, the shelves weren't getting stocked and then they were seen, in some ways that gave a moment to raise the conversation about minimum wage, about, you know, health care, but like you said, we have to find ways to keep our foot, our pedal foot on the pedal of the gas of this, so that these conversations don't just sort of go like, "Oh, that's horrible, that's horrible." Okay, well now we're back to normal. You know what? That normal is not no- was never normal. <laughs> it was yes. never normal. It wasn't normal for the masses. It was normal for a few. So you want to get back to being that. And the rest of us, that's, that's, that's just not the way we can go back to being. It's yeah, just for a, not. For, yeah. for a country that I think has, uh, is so proud of our foundational revolution, mm-hmm. uh, we seem to be very good as a society collectively about turning other revolutions into, into moments, like you said, right, mm-hmm. and, kind of, and kind of squandering the opportunity. You know, really, I mean, there's so many things that I think that there, there has been moments that it sort of started and, you know, and Lord knows I don't want COVID to go on and for us to keep doing this. 
But there are things that have come up that we need to talk about, that we need to to explore, that we need to work at changing, you know. I mean, and you, and you just start looking and you think everywhere from the environment to economics, you know. I mean, it's just like very few areas, and it's a lot of it is about equality. I mean, on a global level, at a, at a local level, how come, you know, we've got people getting booster shots and there's people in some countries who don't have the initial shot, you know, and that's why it continues. I mean, so there's these kind of conversations that I think that it's important to have a forum, to be able to talk, to have people be there to sort of say, well, wait a minute, you know, that's great, but what about this? You know, we, we can't let up just because we have a moment of comfort. Yeah, so. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, it is. I mean, it's so, so much. You know, sometimes I'll be listening and I'll go like, what? You know, what? Yeah. I was talking to someone at, at an organization who I wanted to give some things that were in good shape. They said, oh, well, we can't take uh, any used clothing. And I said, and I said so... You've got people, and you want me to give you money because they don't have clothing, and but you can't take used clothing, even if it's good, and you want me to throw it in the trash, which is not environment. I mean, it's just like, you know, I had to go get a drink. It's just it. You know, it's just too much. Yes. Nope, 100%. So, you know, besides being on the caucus. You are out there in the community. I know that I think that stand with trans, I mean, it has blossomed, like from a mom concerned about her son and trying to reach out and connect with people to really becoming part of a community, creating change. I mean, I've talked to people from other uh, places that network with, with Stand for Trans. What do you see, how has, has you seen the issues and the things that when you were really engaged with Stand with Trans, how has it evolved, how has it changed for trans youth? Yeah, so, uh, you know, started off, so Stand with Trans is about as old as Emmy is, at least, you know, um, after my transition, Emmy, right? And so... Wow. Um, I was looking for uh, resources. I was living in Ann Arbor at the time. Um, probably was dealing with a lot of internalized shame and transphobia, which is something that a lot of trans folks in the community deal with from, you know, negative things you hear your whole life about trans folks and people, right? And, and you internalize that and start to believe it about yourself, right? And so it takes a long time to work through that and um, had never been to a pride festival I don't even know if I had spent a lot of time Googling organizations that I could support or were involved. I don't even think I knew about the ones in Metro Detroit and Detroit, right? I don't even know if I knew about the Ruth Ellis Center and affirmations at the time, right? And so um, I would wake up every morning and I would, in Google, just type in the word transgender, right? Mm. And uh-huh. every, you know, maybe, maybe, once every week there would be a new article somewhere in the world, right? Uh, Now contrast that with today. If you wake up tomorrow, Michelle, and you Google transgender, or you pull it up on your phone and do it right now, right? 
there will be like 57, 60, 100 new articles from all over the country that just posted today, right? Now, double-edged sword. That's a good and a bad thing, right? It's a, it's a um, you know, something we're working through in terms of what the content of that, that media is. But anyways, right, so I would wake up and Google this. And the one day I woke up, and I think it was the Detroit News, uh, there was a link about some organization and it said they were doing this event at this building I hadn't heard of called Affirmations, right? <laughs> An organization mm -hmm. called Stand with Trans. And it was their first ever annual uh, workshop. And it said it was just a day for trans youth um, to come and, and hear from speakers. I think there were, you know, uh, there was a couple support groups there. There were some um, elders in the community talking about their transition and what that process is like. There were, you know, uh, a number of things. I think a self-defense class was a key component of that first year. Art therapy, things like this. Just a day for them to escape in a space where um, folks had an overlapping experience and identity with theirs, right? Uh, which mm -hmm. was something I had not heard of before, right? And so um, I messaged, you know, I think in the email there was some contact um, and, it, you know, it probably said Roz at standwithtrans.org, right? Um, <laughs> Uh, mm -hmm. which I, I think that's public information. But um, so, you know, I just reached out and said, hey, I don't know you. I saw this organization. And I, like I said, was dealing with a lot of my own, like, self-worth issues and, and thought maybe getting involved in the community was a way to cut through some of that, right? And um, so I showed up to Affirmations that day in the fall, like an October day. It was a Sunday, I think. And um, the whole building was being used for this event. And I think I just like picked grapes off the vine and washed them and like moved some boxes around. And then uh, I think a couple weeks after I reached out and was like, hey, that was really cool. But um, you know, I have like an accounting degree and all this stuff and I can like try to help, right? And so the rest was history. So I joined the board of the organization. Um, yeah, and, and um, as a like a 26-year-old quickly found myself to be the uh, treasurer of Stand With Trans Board. And I think our budget at the time was like $15,000 a year or something, one five, right? Mm -hmm. And um, I thought as a 26-year-old accounting background, didn't have a CPA, had never managed people. I think I had a team of one once at my former employer. Um, sure, why wouldn't I be qualified to be the treasurer <laughs> of a, a $15,000 organization, right? Reconcile a couple checks, you know. Um, sign a couple things, send an email here and there, and, and life is good, right? Fast forward to when I stepped away from the board just last July and, and resigned as the board treasurer uh, after, I think, almost five full years um, on their board in, in either that capacity or a different strategic capacity. Um, you know, it was an organization that was getting into the hundreds of thousands of dollars, lower hundreds, right, 100-ish, 200-ish, mm -hmm. uh, which was really, I think, a testament to the work that uh, you know, Roz Keith and the whole board and the organization and all the parents that have gotten involved have been doing to support trans youth, right? And it kind of felt like a snowball effect. Every time we educated someone new on what it meant for a student or a, or a young person to be transgender, there were three new parents who reached out for support or one new supervisor of a school system or one new principal, four new teachers, three different doctors, Right? And all of a sudden, this network started to spiral because everyone was operating in a silo 
with the one or two trans people they knew, right? And that mm-hmm. organization filled, a, 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 I would say, a niche, um, uh, you know, in the Farmington Hills area of Metro Detroit, and it started to kind of uh, bubble up across the rest of the state, and now in, in some capacities, right, with the virtual world and, and with their parent support line, which operates in, I think, every state in the U.S. now, right? It has really become, um, to some extent, a national organization and brand from that perspective and support service for trans youth. And, and you know, I think the really eye-opening thing for me about our work is we have this assumption that because Harvey Milk was District 5 supervisor in San Francisco in 1978, that the Bay Area is so far ahead of Detroit or something, right? <laughs> and yeah. mm-hmm. we had parents in the Bay Area reaching out, asking if they could, we could help them set up support groups in there in Berkeley, California. And it was like, wow, really, we're not doing this anywhere for any of these kids and these families, right? So mm-hmm. um, I think that's what, I, I mean, that alone is something that's different for youth today than it would have been seven years ago, just having that organization there. But uh can you imagine starting with the first doctor we talked to and the two doctors they talked to and the five family members they told, right, that bubble effect? Just mm-hmm. from, from that alone, how many more people are educated now? How many more people are empathetic and sensitive and passionate about helping trans youth now than when we started this journey, right? So just word of mouth, just the game telephone, right? Um, it's a completely different world than it was for these kids. And... You know, I see all these fears about this this myth called rapid onset gender dysphoria, right? That we as a community are pushing uh, the youth of America into uh, challenging gender norms and, and transgender identities and things like this. And what it really is, is we're finally seeing what percentage of the population has actually thought like this and been this way and identify this way and, and probably struggled with it right? And how many folks were doing it silently? We don't know how many mm-hmm. lives that cost us from our community, how many people never had a coming out story, right? And so now we're finally seeing what an accurate representation of this community is in our country in terms of the statistics, right? And uh, that's scaring some people, but that's what it is. It is not rapid onset gender dysphoria. It is not a propaganda war, it is absolutely people seeing themselves represented in adults and, and uh, executives and celebrities and artists and mm-hmm. all these areas, lawyers, politicians, right? Politicians. We have, uh, uh, you know, we have, I think, Andrea Jenkins, right, in Minnesota. Yeah, that's my girl. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, actually, have, at one point in time, they had two trans, the year that Andrea got elected, there was also a trans man who also got elected on on their um, city council. Yeah, yeah. So we have Isn't that. that Danica Rome, mm-hmm. Sarah, Sarah McBride now is the first state senator, right? Um, mm-hmm. And so, by the way, don't ask me when I'm going to run because everyone does and I still haven't figured out the <laughs> answer. But, um, mm-hmm. you know, it's really just uh, what a different world than it was eight years ago, right? Now, with it mm-hmm. comes all the challenges and we can talk about that as we kind of move forward but you know we know there's been a lot of challenges coming our way through um, through society and culture but also um, really unfortunately legislatively 
Well, with that, we're going to take our next break, and then we're going to come back and talk about about that, politics and the 2022 midterm elections. So we'll be right back. Collections by Michelle Brown airs every Thursday at 7 p.m. You can subscribe now and listen to the podcast on Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. Be sure to like the Collections by Michelle Brown Facebook page and mark your calendar so you never miss an episode. you i love andrea jenkins did you know she's also a poet i did not know she's a poet and now i'm I writing her, it down in my notes here i knew her I, i'll tell you my andrea jenkins i met her at creating change because i do poetry she came down we were sitting and I, and she remembers it better because she can tell you what we were drinking she sat down she had her first book and what i was it's called the tea is not silent she did two books with the same name, and they're, they're different. Um, she sat down, and we were talking. She said, well, this is my book. You need to buy it. And I said, well, okay, you know. And we started that we've been friends ever since. And actually, <clears throat> drum roll, please, it was right about the time that she started to announce the first time that she was on this show that she was going to run for office. And I mean, she, but she is still, she's incredible. I mean, she is, Andrea Jenkins is just friggin' incredible. I mean, if you is ever she the get the opportunity. Is she the council president now, or is she running for that? Uh, she was the vice president, and she's running for it. I mean, you know, it's sort of like okay. ours, where whoever gets the most votes. Got it. You know, so if you ever get the opportunity to meet her, I mean, and she's also one of those gracious people who will sit down and take the time to talk to you. And, I mean, and she's just phenomenal. She is, uh, she is just a phenomenal individual. I mean, she's, and she can talk about her poetry, and, and she's thoughtful. She says her poetry makes her think about what she says when she's in council. She's just amazing. Wow. You know, I'm a wow. big Clearly a big fan. You know? Well, now, Clearly I a big look, fan. now I have to look up the book and the, and the poetry. Oh, yeah. I mean, just amazing. And I know that somewhere there's a couple places. Um, I know that there used to be some YouTube things of her reading her poetry, and it's just like, wow. And once at, what is it, the Transgender Day of Visibility, I would always go there, and, and one time I read one of her poems. And I told her, I said, girl, if I'd had your books, I could have made you a mint. <laughs> Oh my gosh! Oh, she's just she's just a phenomenal person, you know. I'm my top ten list of people who I just absolutely adore. So now I'm gonna be quiet for a a couple seconds, and then we'll go. Okay. Okay. Uh Well, we're back here on collections by Michelle Brown. Emmy, you know, we have midterm elections, and often people show up 
for the presidential election. And then they say that often because, well, okay, the person got in there, they didn't give everything immediately, so they don't show up for the midterms. And then, okay, we had that eight years of Barack Obama when, you know, everybody who was just about who was gay got to go to the White House. I mean, you know, where you heard our issues, you know, get addressed. Then we had that orange period. And now we've got Joe Biden who wants to build back better, but he's also made a number of clear appointments, not only of people of color, people who are queer, people who are trans, you know, like really doing it. What, as you look into 2022, midterm elections, what are the things that we need to think about besides Supreme Court uh, nominations? Uh, But what are the things that you think that should be on people's, the front burner, that they're thinking about what we still have work to do? Yeah. Well, you know, the first thing I think about is when we started looking at um, uh, infrastructure and build back better and all these things and, and, you know, on the infrastructure front, federally, we did get a, a trillion dollars passed, right, which is not a small feat um, in kind of the, the current political climate we're operating in with a basically a split Senate, a narrow majority in the U.S. House, right? I think actually the slimmest uh, majority in the U.S. House of Reps in a long time, right, mm-hmm. and, a, and a Democratic president and an LGBTQ plus ally um, in, in President Biden, right? But, but what got lost? in that kind of that kind of back and forth right it's not just that we got a trillion dollar bill passed but one of the things that got lost in all of this was the potential to uh you know cut back on the student debt crisis in this country right the potential to start to re-examine uh the long-lasting kind of war on drugs right and people have said things like hey um maybe we should use a different term for that I guess I don't care what term we use for it, right? We need to re-examine the whole concept of it, right? And so mm-hmm. uh, these are some of the things that have been dropped in the discourse, and not because I think the folks we've elected don't care about it, but I just don't think we've gotten there in terms of the movement building yet. And this is what's frustrating, and I know we'll talk about this, um, you know, as we kind of kind of cut through uh, not just 2222, but, you know, what's beyond that. But I think, you know, really thinking about where we were at um, 2016. I'm sure, Michelle, you can probably tell me where you were uh, the day that, the night, I should say, um, you know, it didn't even make it into the wee hours of the morning like some previous Mm -hmm. elections had, right? Um, Mm -hmm. When uh, a certain someone, right, our 45th president was elected, and um, I know I felt... I had like a pit of despair about, you know, what that meant for us, right? And mm-hmm. so I know there's an urge. And part of this is, I think, our fault as a, sometimes as a political instrument and as people kind of conveying the message of making people think that if you, like we said earlier, elect that one politician that one time will have voting rights forever and Roe v. Wade will be protected, right? And that's not the reality. The, the reality is for this thing to work, you know, the elections aren't stopping, and it's a democracy, right? We don't want the elections to stop. At, at least Democrats don't want the election to stop, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, we have to keep showing up to the polls when we vote. And not just, like you said, in 2022, but last year was a municipal election, right? 
And mm-hmm. that's really important time to vote, right? Um, so like we said, the personal is political. Chances to address, I mean, uh, I know that voting can feel like a burden to some, but uh, how cool is it that we get a chance almost every fall to go and get engaged in our politics in this way and the decisions that are being made that impact our lives, right? And so, you know, two years ago, Republicans tried to overturn an entire presidential election. Thank you. Right? Mm -hmm. They were unsuccessful in doing it the first way, which was also illegal. But then remember on January 6th, uh, they tried it a Mm -hmm. second illegal way, and and they literally launched an insurrection at the U.S. Capitol. Right? Mm -hmm. And so I know it's easy to sit around and point the finger and say, here's what Democrats did and didn't do, and, and Joe Manchin and Cinema, Kirsten Cinema, are putting uh-huh. the filibuster, and mm-hmm. and because of it, we can't get voting rights passed, and and for the LGBTQ plus community, we can't get the Equality Act passed, right? So, so many of us live in states where we don't even have civil rights protections still, right? And so, mm-hmm. that's frustrating. That's frustrating. I empathize with that because it impacts me too, right? But I think mm-hmm. you know the long game is really the one we have to play, and maybe this is something for us as leaders in the community and activists um, who have, you know, attained kind of the platform, uh, you know, maybe it's something we need to be more transparent about in our, in our messaging, right? That uh, we're not trying to win elections, we're trying to build a movement, right? We're not trying to engage in the transactional politics of send someone to Washington once or Lansing twice and expect them to change our world, right? But how do we build something that's longer lasting, that's more sustainable? And so I think that's what's at stake in a midterm election. It's, it's, you're trying not to go backwards, right? We're just barely starting to stop all the bleeding that happened um, over the last you know, four-ish years in the country and longer in the state of Michigan, right? When's the last time mm-hmm. Democrats even controlled the legislature in the state of Michigan? And by the way, the electorate went to the ballot uh, a couple years back, right, and changed the way, uh, you know, our maps are drawn in the state of Michigan. And I know there was a yep. lot of politicization and negative media about how messy that was. Some things are going to be messy when we try new things, you know, um, but we have to adapt that dare to fail mindset where we, we, we do messy things at the sake of growth, right? We step outside what's been comfortable for us for the sake of growth. And as a result, the maps in Michigan look a lot more representative of the people who live here and their preferences and their beliefs and their values, right, and the freedoms that we care about than what it looked like before we redrew those maps. So Mm -hmm. to say we haven't had victories, I think, is not true. But that being said, I completely empathize with the scenario of feeling disenfranchised, with the scenario of feeling cut out. We've had 250 years of, you know, a large group of people, whether you shape that by party or class or income level, right, or race, right, that has systemically and systematically tried to disenfranchise a large group of people in our country. And so it's natural that you feel disenfranchised because you are. But, like, let's try to find that collective momentum because, you know, the Supreme Court just heard oral arguments on Roe v. Wade, and I don't want to be a nihilist about this, but mm-hmm. it sure feels to me like that's going to get overturned, right? And when it does, how many women and people who give birth in this country will lose the critical access to reproductive health care that they need? The human right, the liberty, the critically you know, bod- bodily emotional health access to an abortion in this country, right? 
And if you think that's the end game for them, if you think they overturned Roe and now they'll unwind the Federalist Institution and stop appointing ultra-conservative justices because they got this one thing, I, th I think you're uh, gravely underestimating the direction mm -hmm. that, that those who oppose LGBTQ people and women's rights and black folks and indigenous folks, right, and, and other people of color, immigrants, right, um, if you think that's, you know, they're going to stop at the last person, I, I think, you know, we're, we're gravely mistaken, right? And so, mm -hmm. you know, we continue, and I don't want to phrase this all negatively, right? But we do continue to see legislatures across our nation introduce these, uh, the anti-trans sports bills, right? So, mm -hmm. I mean, get, get this, Michelle, right? So we don't want um, trans youth to have access to gender-affirming health care until they're 18, but then when they're 18 and they want to compete on the swim team, we tell them they can't because they didn't start transitioning when they were 12. So how is that, right, for justice? How is that for equity, right? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, mm -hmm. we have this rise of these, you know, they call them the RIFRA bills, right, which are like these um, framed as these religious freedom bills, which is like a foundation our country was built on as religious freedom, right? But really they're just anti-LGBTQ bills and, anti, you know, reproductive freedom bills disguised if as anything, religious they're the, they're the opposite of what, because those religious freedoms were so that you could, you know, they're using the religious freedoms to sort of punitively to say, what, no, you can't do this, you can't do that, you can't do that. But that's not what it was about. You know, one of the things that I remember reading, you know, back when they started to do the conservative movement, and I, and I, I want to say that I heard it on NPR because I'm that kind of girl. <laughs> but they said that way far back, people thought, and they said they started running for everything from running the doghouse, knowing that eventually they'd run the White House. And often, like if you say, like even like, uh, what is it, the bill in Texas, was it, uh, SB8, okay, the people who are in there, you might have people who are out in the community who are doing it, but they're not the ones who are running for office. So we have to change our mindset to that, you know, even if you're on the school board, that, you know, you're shaping things. And, you know, we have to become, inject ourselves into the process to change the process. That's right, because even at the municipal level, they're trying to erase our origin stories, right? Our mm -hmm. representation, and not mm -hmm. just the LGBTQ plus LGBTQ plus community, right? But uh, you know the story of of Black people in America, Black history in America, mm -hmm. which is just history in America, right? Mm -hmm. And so they're banning, you know, the books uh, from the shelves that talk about LGBTQ plus identities and and um, Black icons in history and racism, and they call it critical race theory, which is really something students don't learn until they go to college. We're talking about diversity, equity, and inclusion a lot of the time, right? Um, mm -hmm. And that's not to say we shouldn't teach critical race theory in schools. It's to say, I don't think anyone really knows what that means when they critique it. And then, you know, all these things creep in, and, and you know, what it serves to do is we spent kind of the earlier portion of this call talking about how all the conversations we had to have and the education we had to put in to get folks to start humanizing us and to see all this legislation and the rhetoric behind it. It's designed to dehumanize us, right? Mm -hmm. And 
I don't think you and I need a history book to know what happens to classes of people when, peop- when, when the people around them and in their society don't see them as human, right? Um, it's a very slippery, slippery slope. It's a dangerous road to go down. And that is absolutely at stake in 2022. Biden's not on the ballot, right? Um, we do have three executives, right? Female executives in the state of Michigan and mm-hmm. Attorney General Nessel, Governor Whitmer, and Secretary of State Benson, right? Who have been um, fierce allies of the LGBTQ plus community. Dana Nessel's a member of the LGBTQ yep. plus community mm-hmm. as our Attorney General. Um, and so have they been able to do everything we wanted to do with the Republican legislature? No. I, I will be honest with you. They would be honest with you about that, I'm sure, right? But what, you know, what are some of the things we've done? We, you know, as soon as Governor Whitmer got in there, we instated LGBTQ plus protections for state employees and, and contractors, right? That impacts a huge segment of the population. So when the fruit is there to grab, we grab it, right? We need to mm-hmm. find a way to make more fruit there to grab, right? Or, or find a different way to grab it. But, you know, I want to make sure people also realize, you know, Jocelyn Benson as her Secretary of State in just the last couple of years, the first years of her term, um, you know, has helped overhaul the Secretary of State in general, has been the fiercest advocate for voting rights that we've had in a Secretary of State in Michigan in decades, right? Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. Really, really values her position as the Chief of Elections in our state. It means the world to her to make sure we, as Michiganders, have access to the ballot. And on top of that, she has added self-attestation to identification documents for Mm -hmm. uh, Michiganders. Uh, You want to talk about removing systemic barriers and obstacles for someone not to have to procure a legal name change or a doctor's note, someone without health care trying to get a note from a doctor. Can you imagine that scenario, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And so she has taken down that barrier for an entire community of people. And then we just added X gender to ID cards in the state of Michigan this year, right? And so, you know, losing that's at stake, but also what are we not dreaming of today that we can accomplish tomorrow if we show up in 2022, right? We're not Mm going to be able to get everything done every cycle, but we got to keep the pressure on. And I'll say... Why stop at the midterm election, right? Michelle, you talked about earlier, how do we hold politicians accountable? I would love Mm -hmm. to see as much noise and energy around politics, uh, you know, two months after we get these folks reelected, right, Um, as we do in November, right? Let's transcend that transactional nature of politics and kind of, you know, move forward in a way that, that says, you know, this train's not stopping for anyone or anything, right? That's right. You know, and like you said, you said we, we've gotten things. You said, hi, we need more grabbers. We need more people who are going to sow the seeds, more people who are going to, you know, just be involved in, and, you know, like you said, not let it go down like Roland and I had talked, and it was like it used to be back in the day they'd say, oh, we'll write letters. And now people, many people think that, um, well, we don't do the letter writing. With COVID, you can't show up at somebody's office. But you can show up, you know, at if they in in district. You can show up there and sort of say, "Hey, you said you were going to do this. You didn't do it. You can write them. 
most of them watch their social media, but you have to make sure that they know that, you know, you might have got me in November, but you need to keep me December, January, February, March, 24-7 all year. I think that's ex- exactly right, Michelle, right, is, mm-hmm. is uh, keeping our finger on the pulse of the politics because they're happening to us all day, every day, right? Mm-hmm. We have a full-time legislature in the state of Michigan, right? That means every day we go to work to, you know, respond to emails or stock shelves or build cars, right? Because this is Michigan and we still build cars, right? Um, you know, every day we go to work and we do these things, there's a group of people who are going to work in Lansing and they're making legislation that will impact us, right? And so we need to keep our finger on the pulse of that somehow. Mm-hmm. I mean, we really have to. Well, Emmy, we're almost at close to time, and I'm going to tell you one last thing. You know how you're out there and you may or may not run for office. Who knows? <laughs> but um, as you live your life, you do it. And one of the things that I remember being at one of uh, conventions at on it, or is it the TCF Center now, and Alyssa Slotkin came. And one of the things that about Alyssa Slotkin that her mother was a member of the community who lived very out loud, and it it touched her. And we talk about, you know, what would you say to people? One of the things that her mother said, her mother died from cancer, so and Alyssa is on health care. She's on LGBT issues. But one of the things that her mother said in her life, and she just, like, went for it. She did all of it, like, and it was really like when we knew she was about to go, she said that she was okay because she had no unfinished business. You know, and I hope that all of us go for it. I mean, you know, go for it. Do what it is, not say like, oh, I wish I could. I want people to be like you, to go like, well, hey, $15,000, I can do that. <laughs> you know, I can do that. I'm going to step in here and do that. I'm going to surf and find it and do that. What would you say to someone who's listening or maybe have seen you out and about and they would say, well, you know, maybe they're just coming out. You know, maybe they, don't, they haven't hit that seven, they haven't hit that seven year mark. Maybe they're waiting to, to reach year one. What would you say to them so that one day they can look back and say, you know what? No unfinished business here. I'm, I've done my job. Oh, my goodness. Michelle, that's the toughest question you've asked tonight. And we talked about <laughs> politics most of the time. So mm-hmm. uh, that's, that's very telling. Uh, you know, the first thing I would say is give yourself grace, right? Mm-hmm. I think we live in an era, like we said, it's all about keeping up and not missing out, right? Um, but we also talked today about listening to yourself and what you need, Right. And I know transitioning early on can be a lot of trying to listen to yourself about what you need emotionally, physically, right, um, nutrition-wise. Um, so give yourself the grace, right? Um, step back when you need to step back, right? Uh, you know, your attrition will serve at your own expense if you burn out, right? Um, mm-hmm. So I think that's the first thing is when you're taking care of yourself, um, that's activism, right? Uh, I think some folks call it radical self-care, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Taking care of yourself in a world that 
uh, doesn't want to give you the permission and space to take care of yourself. So that would be my first and foremost thing is, is take care of yourself because I think once you do that, and don't get me wrong, I struggle with it. I'm someone who struggles with depression. I'm someone who struggles with anxiety, self-harm ideations, right? Um, I have a hard time giving myself grace. I have a hard time pulling myself back from the mix sometimes, right? But every time I have done that, I've come back stronger. I've come back a better yeah. advocate, a better ally, right? And so, you know, we say don't count the days, but make the days count. And I think, um, you know, one of the things we need to consider is that also means don't count the days that you that, that you need to, you know, recoup and relax and refresh, right? Uh, make mm -hmm. those days count too, right? I think we're in an era where we're always expected to be producing something, productive, right? Contributing somehow. Uh, but sometimes that's a way of contributing. So I really think that's the biggest one. The second one, and it took me 12 years to learn this, um, and, you know, I was reading a memoir this summer. Um, one of my, uh, she's been one of my favorite artists for a while, and it's really weird now that she's exploded into stardom all of a sudden. But Brandy Carlisle, I'm not sure if you're familiar with her. Oh, yes, I do. Yeah. So she wrote a memoir this summer called Broken Horses. Mm -hmm. And uh, I read it in a day, I think, on my, on my back patio. But, um, you know, I always wondered this about her because she wasn't that famous, but she would release, like, these random albums with like a bunch of celebrities like Elton John performing on the album. And I'm like, it, and this is not a knock on Brandy Carlisle. And now she's a superstar and an Emmy winner. But I would say, huh, I guess I wouldn't have expected like someone as big as Elton John to play on her album. And she says in her book, she's like, you know, everyone thinks like I caught all these breaks. She's like, everything I've gotten in my life, I, I, I asked for it. Right. So I would say ask for what you want. And I am just starting to figure out how to do that for myself in the last couple of years, right? Whether it's to step away for a little bit, right? Whether it's to get a promotion or more money or uh, advocating for yourself in a family relationship or a friend relationship when you think someone's crossed a boundary, right? Um, if you don't ask for it, we probably won't get it, right? So mm -hmm. I spent so much of my life saying, uh, worrying about what had or hadn't been given to me. And don't get me wrong, um, when you start asking, you're also going to hear the word no. So I didn't say if you ask for it, you will get it. But mm -hmm. if you don't ask for it, you definitely won't get it, right? So mm -hmm. um, I would say those are the two big ones. Give yourself grace and, and ask for it, right? Advocate for yourself. And I think if you do those two things um, and, and lead with your heart and you know love everyone, you kind of come into contact with and, and try to spread that, that seed of, of, of hope and courage with everyone you're around um, all the time, which my friends will probably wince when they hear this because I'm full of depressing facts after I read books and watch documentaries <laughs> at night. Um, mm -hmm. But I think other than that, they'd say hopefully that I'm, I'm, I bring joy to their lives in a way that not, not everyone around them does. And so I think that's, um, you know, that's, those, are, those are the big ones for me. Well, Emmy... First of all, I'm going to tell you, we're going to talk again later this year. I mean, you know, maybe during, maybe about the time the weather breaks and we can meet someplace outside. <laughs> oh, that sounds so good. That sounds so good. I mean, where, do you, where do you go, Michelle? Like, what's your restaurant? Um, well, I'll tell you. I, have, I don't know. I mean, the first place that came to mind to me was Anita's Kitchen. 
I like that. They're on Woodward okay. in Ferndale. Okay, yes. but I, we definitely have to talk more. This has been an absolute joy. Um, I look forward to talking to you. And really, you know, I mean, we just had a great time just, just talking, and I want to uh, talk to you more about things. Um, thank you. Absolutely. Well, thank you. Um, I can't tell you uh, how long I've admired you, mostly from afar, and I'll be better at admiring you from closer from now on, if, if that sounds okay with you. Uh, yes, that definitely does. I saw the way people looked at you the first time I think we were in a room together, and it didn't take me long to realize that an entire community in this, this, you know, this pocket of our world looks up to you and cherishes what you mean to our community. So I felt like a blessing and an honor to be here with you tonight. Well, thank you. I want to thank my guest, Emmy Zanati. Emmy is a diversity, equity, and inclusion specialist, community advocate, and political activist. She also serves as third vice chair of the Michigan Democratic Party's LGBTQ&A caucus, a big leap forward for transgender representation in the heart of progressive politics in Michigan. Be sure and follow Collections by Michelle Brown Blog Radio on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And let us know if you have a suggestion for a guest or topic for a future show. You can listen to this or past episodes of the show on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or Blog Talk Radio. Join us next week when I'll introduce you to another Amazing individual, living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality and creating change, right here on Collections by Michelle Brown. Thank you for listening.